calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello, Miss Keegan. Hello, Miss Madigan. Now, I remembered this after we stopped recording our mini, but I guess this officially will be our last episode that we will have to record separately. That's right. I, I cannot even believe it. I can't wrap my head around it. Like, truly, I can't wrap my head around it. The idea of going back to recording in person. Like, I was telling you, the closet has not seen any action for (laughs) over a year. And I'm like, I'm going to have to make space in there. I'm going to have to tidy up in there. It's getting hot again. So we're going to have to, like, run the AC during the day. It was so hot in this apartment today. All the old problems that we had to deal with are back. New again. They are oh new again. Oh my gosh. It's going to be so crazy sitting, especially in such a confined space as a very long, narrow closet. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really weird sitting that close to somebody in such a confined space that is not my boyfriend. Indeed. I know. <laughs> it's going to be I, weird. I know. I mean, you and I were talking before, you know, full disclosure, I think most of the listeners know we record the mini in the full most of the time on the same night. Not always. Right. But before we started recording the mini earlier, we were talking about how... It's hard to get used to interacting with people again, like socializing, like on an energy level, because I used to be able to be one one of those people who would be able to go like event, event, Saturday, Sunday, all day, you know, and now I'm like, if I do one thing with one group of other vaccinated people, I have to go home and sleep. Like, I'm tired, I'm, like, knocked out, I'm not used to, like, being out amongst people anymore. I'm really worried about how awkward I'm going to be. Like, what what foot-in-my-mouth thing am I going to say? Like, I just feel like I've become so socially awkward not interacting with people in person that I feel like... I'm going to have a severe case of foot and mouth syndrome well, when you're I like, see alone. people again. <laughs> you're not alone. Listen, I went to Cactus Taqueria here in L.A. to get some tacos the other uh-huh. day. And the number of people in there who were acting a mess, I was like, it is so clear to me that none of you have been around other human beings for a solid year. You will not be alone. <laughs> you what will not were they, be alone. What was happening? 
So there was one guy when we were ordering, he was just like saying some wild shit and maybe he's just an asshole. Like that's possible. But he was just like saying some weird shit to like the people who worked there. And then when he finally got his food, he like sat down to eat it and he was eating it and he was like yelling to the people who were working. He was like, I give it an A minus. And I was like, that's a weird thing to say to someone. Like, it's like a backhanded compliment. Where yeah, like, exactly. It's good. Like, it's, it's good. It's not perfect. And then we went outside to wait for our order to come up. And there were these girls out there who were just literally yelling at every car who drove by. And like, and like talking to every person who walked by. And I was like, and they were so loud. And part of me, I was feuding with myself because part of me was like, yes, Queens, live your life. I get it. It's been a rough year. And then the other part of me was like, could you take it down like four decibels? Like (laughs) a lot. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I just feel like I'm going to be so quiet and socially awkward. And then when I do talk, it's just going to be bad news bears. I don't know. We'll see. We're talking about maybe having a, another vaccinated set of friends come over this weekend. And we're like, it's going to be What weird. do we do? I what know. Do what do we say? How do I we know. interact with other human beings? I, I don't know. know. How do we fill our time with other human beings? We can't just turn the screen on. We have to yeah. talk to each other, you know? Get a game. It will help be a buffer. <laughs> oh, I miss game nights so much. I have tons of games. That is definitely on the agenda. Do it, do it. <laughs> All right. Well, we should probably get into our topic for the episode today, and I am so glad that we are finally going to be talking about this woman and this situation. Um, we are going to be talking about Anita Hill today and her testimony against the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And before we even get started, because I think that the story... I think this story is going to be very reminiscent to our listeners as it was to myself when I was reading all the details to the Christine Blasey Ford Mm -hmm. testimony uh, against Brett Kavanaugh. And so we did mention Anita Hill quite a bit, particularly I believe it was when we did that kind of elongated mini episode where it was all about the Kavanaugh hearing and things like that. I do remember talking about Anita Hill, talking about the fact that Anita Hill was in communication with Christine Blasey Ford. Yes. Um, So I'm so glad to learn more about the testimony, I should say, that kind of, um, I shouldn't say started at all because it didn't, but something that happened so long ago that you would think that enough has changed since then and that hopefully the public conscious and uh, idea of sexual assault would change. But really, it hasn't changed all that much. Right. Yeah. And I do want to point out that we wanted to talk about this or rather you brought it up to talk about this because April was Sexual Assault Awareness Month and um, We did not cover this in April. We meant to. And so we are going to cover this for the first week of May. We're still Um, in April right now as we're recording it. So I'm going to count it. (laughs) We we are. I also want to say that I, and I should have texted you about this, but I didn't watch it until earlier today. I watched the documentary Anita on Amazon. uh, Is it the uh, Speak Truth to Power? It's called Anita. So there's a documentary called Anita on Amazon Prime Video. So if you pay for Amazon Prime. I think that's the same one that I watched, but I thought it was Anita colon. 
Maybe something it could else. Be, it might be a different one. The the full title that I saw was just Anita. But Anita. I mean, it, it could be the same one. I, I don't know. But it was so good and so impactful. And I did not expect to feel the way that I felt. I can't believe that I didn't know more about this woman. I think that she is so um, inspiring. Oh, yeah. And I really just feel like, and that's part of the conversation that we'll have today, I really feel like the handling of this situation and what she went through was so sloppy and so dismissive. Yeah, she wasn't taken care of at all. Or looked out for in any right. sense of and, the and it, word. Yeah, and it totally went over my head how much more there was to this story. Because, of course, like, I knew about Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas in the most basic sense. You know, I watched I Love the 90s and they were just making jokes on VH1 yeah. about, you know, pubes on Coke, Coke cans. cans. yeah. And it wasn't, I didn't understand or fully grasp the situation um, or what Anita Hill would go on to do later on. So exactly, yeah. it was wonderful to to kind of like get to see that and learn more about her. Yeah. And was this a documentary that you watched or because I know there's been movies made about her as well, like blockbuster films. This was a documentary. Okay, I-, I think we watched I think we watched the same one then because I was watching on Amazon. I watched I only got to watch half of it, but it was really good. Yes, yeah, I think that that is it. Um, Where it, it looks starts like with it, the it starts with the phone call from Ginny. Yes, yeah. Yes. So oh. that that is it. Um, yeah, I watched it. It is, it's so good. It, yeah, again, it's on it's on Amazon Prime Video. Not that we want to give Amazon all of our coins, but if right. you're already paying for it, go go watch it. It's yeah. it's very good. Um, yeah, very very well made documentary, and I love that she is such a big part of it and that she is able to tell her story from her side and not just have it be about public perception well because here's the thing like of course we on this podcast believe anita point blank you know (laughs) spoiler alert for the the story but in addition to that in addition to clarence thomas being a sexual harasser He's also just a major fucking asshole. Like oh, the more that you dick. you learn about him and kind of not only what he put Anita Hill through while they were working together but afterwards it's horrible. Like yeah. he's he's a just I don't he's a bully. No, he's no a mean person. mean bully. Yes. No good person would do that. It's just it's so Yeah, I think that it shows, I think that this whole story, as well as the Brett Kavanaugh story, shows uh, just the complete lack of understanding when it comes to victims of sexual assault, especially from a male perspective and a male point of view. And I think that that was really where... Anita was truly not protected because she was kind of, to me, it looked like she was surrounded by all these men. Yes. That really yeah. weren't considerate, that weren't kind, that weren't gentle with her. That um, didn't understand at all because we can even narrow the focus, well, we can even narrow the focus even further from sexual assault to sexual harassment. Yes. Which yes. I feel like to this day, people have a hard time 
understanding what's the big deal it was just a few comments it was just a few these or that how can that be so hurtful or damaging exactly because it wasn't explicit sexual contact that especially in this time and the fact that she stood before a bunch of middle-aged white men yeah um who had probably gone through their entire lives well for those able to do what they wanted to do right for those who don't know anita hill is a black woman Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so I really do feel like there was not an understanding from the culture at large, period, but specifically for men and men in power and men of a certain age to have an understanding of what this meant, what the repercussions were. And I think that there was a lot of denial on the part of a lot of these men because having to acknowledge that the stuff that Anita Hill was saying that Clarence Thomas did to her was damaging would be having to acknowledge that maybe behaviors that they've exhibited Mm -hmm. in their past towards people who worked under them that they just considered to be normal these like madmen-esque kind of like you know things that would go on in offices were actually damaging to people and I don't think that a lot of these people were ready to have that reckoning with themselves. Yeah. That's uh, and a great with the point. culture, with the culture at all. You yeah. Know, so. I definitely want to talk about uh, Biden with all of yes. that, but let's talk about that when we get to it. I want to talk, let's talk a little bit about Anita Hill and who she is up until that point, And then we'll talk about the hearings and okay. everything. So she yep. is smart as a whip. Actually, she and Clarence Thomas, had relatively similar backgrounds. Um, They were both from like the Bible Belt kind of area, from, you know, not super well-to-do homes. They both went to law school. Um, Anita actually got a degree in psychology with honors in 1977 at the Oklahoma State University. And then after that, she went to Yale Law School, which is also where Clarence Thomas went. And there she got her Juris Doctor degree again with honors in 1980. Yeah, can I go back just a teensy bit to talk do, a little bit about her her childhood because I found this to be very interesting. So mm-hmm. she was born on July 30th, 1956 in Lone Tree, Oklahoma, and her family had this farm. It was like this, not even a farm, it was just like a little house on a big piece of property. Uh-huh. In the documentary, it shows her walking down the driveway and she's like, we would have to walk a mile essentially to put our mail away or to get our mail because that's how far the driveway was I would drive it (laughs) really seriously (laughs) um but she was the youngest of 13 children yeah and her family and I I found this very interesting uh kind of similarly to the way we were talking about how George Floyd's great great grandfather was a uh, enslaved person her family ended up in Oklahoma after her grandparents had moved from Arkansas and they moved with basically just the clothes on their backs Uh after a lynch mob threatened (gasps) to lynch her grandfather. Oh my gosh. Yes, there was like a a kind, you know, white neighbor who her grandfather had befriended who warned her or, or warned him that they were coming for him. And so they left that night 
and they escaped to Oklahoma, which they found to be kind of like a safe place because it wasn't the deep, deep south. Although I can personally testify that there is a lot of really, really horrific racism that happens in Oklahoma. Uh, Yeah, Oklahoma to me is really like that's still the south. I mean, depending on where you are in Oklahoma, like I know that Texas and Oklahoma, their neighbors... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the Midwest because I'm from Missouri, and Missouri and um, where I'm from in Missouri is you is, cannot tell me Oklahoma is the Midwest. It is. Oh yes, it is. It is it not. Is. Do not. Te- yes. Is it actually part of the Midwest? Yes. That's ridiculous to me. It's a. Su- it's totally. They're southern. Even even like I know that Anthony is from Ohio. Even that is crazy to me that that's part of. Oh, Ohio's solidly Midwest. I Ohio's know, but even, I, I know, but I think, well, maybe I wasn't thinking Ohio. Maybe I think of something else. But that's still crazy to me. I think I'm just the northest and the, and well, the westest, not the westest. <laughs> well, because Being from Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota's not the Midwest. Minnesota is the north. That's true. West-ish. But even then, I mean, you're, you're pushing east. Like, you're moving... You're in the center, but you're north. Like, like Missouri was one of the only, if not the only state in the Union to split during the um, Civil War. So right. the northern half was for the northern side and the southern half was for the southern side because mm-hmm. that's where it's situated. It's literally kind of like in the center. And Yeah, Missouri is an interesting one. Yeah, Oklahoma is to the west of, of Missouri. So it is still, it is a Midwest state, but it does depend on where you are. Just like in Missouri, it depends on where you are. If you're in Southern Missouri, you're going to get very Southern vibes. If yeah, you're in Northern you're Missouri, get the, the accent and but yeah. but regardless, for Anita's family, like it wasn't the Deep South. It totally you know it mean? was it enough, was, and it was close enough too. I can imagine that it would be really hard. Um, especially with a short notice, like if his neighbor was kind of like, Hey, like you've got to get out of town and just right. grabbing your family and leaving. I could just, I could see where moving to Oklahoma would be far enough away, but close enough still, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. It didn't feel like moving to, um, Georgia or Mississippi or Alabama, yeah. you know, it and it felt wasn't like, as intense as moving to like Chicago or New York, you know. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and I only say those things because, like, later on, her going back to Oklahoma after all of this happened presented issues because Oklahoma is an incredibly red state. Yeah. Um, when her older siblings began their education, they did so in segregated schools. And by the time Anita started school, her parents made it very clear to her that she had to be, you know, given their history, they were like, look, you have to be twice as good to get half as much as the white students um, that you're going to be going up against. And that is what they expected of her. And because of that, she, in part, and also because she's very smart and she's ambitious. She's so friggin' smart. Yes. She graduated valedictorian of her integrated high school before going on, as you said, to study psychology at Oklahoma State University um, and then going on to Yale in yeah. 1980. Yeah. Then she was admitted to the District of Columbia Bar in 1980 and started her law degree as an associate with the firm Wald. Hark Raider and Ross in Washington, okay. D.C. So in 1981, she became an attorney advisor to Clarence Thomas, who was then the, I wrote, ASS in all caps, assistant secretary <laughs> of the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. And I guess 
Clarence and Anita met through mutual friends, I read somewhere. And so it was through that that he was like, why don't you come work for me and serve as my assistant when he became the chairman of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 1982. So that's how she got her job. Yeah, I mean, and this was a dream for her. This is what she wanted to be involved in. She wanted to be involved in civil rights. I mean, this was an equal opportunity department, essentially. Like, this was a very big deal for her. And and that's something that that you'll see come up in her testimony. Of course, there's a lot of victim blaming. There's a lot of, why did you stick it out? Why didn't you leave? And something that resonated about her story with other people or other women specifically, but also men. You know, she speaks about how, like, a lot of men actually came and talked to her afterwards. But specifically with women, something that resonated to a lot of women was that you have this opportunity for this dream job of yours. And, and, And it's an opportunity that could open more doors for you. And, like, do you just grin and bear it? Do you just suck it up because you don't want to lose this opportunity. And I feel like so many people can relate to that. Well, I feel like it was the precedent at the time. You know, you were just discussing, you know, kind of the madman culture and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff, which obviously that takes place, you know, 20 years before all of this. But I know that, you know, sexual harassment is wild and rampant today, you know, but at least now we have a little bit more of an understanding of what it looks like, where I feel like at this time, it would still be something that was so understood You know, much like we said with the men in the room when she was testifying, it's like, that's just what you put up with as a woman. If you're going to be put in a high-powered position or if you're going to be working with the big boys or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, you have to kind of, like, learn to take it. And I think that's something that women have kind of taken on, that, like, you know, this is just the way they are, so I have to... I have to brush I it off. I have to adapt. I have yeah. to adapt, be strong mm-hmm. enough, focus on my work, do what needs to be done, and just pretend that's not even going on instead of focusing on the fact that it's really shitty and shouldn't be happening. Because I hopefully right. now it would be brought up a little bit more, but I don't even know if that was... I mean, maybe there was a pros and cons list for her working with him, but I bet that the pro of the career that she wants, I can totally understand, especially at that time, why that would outweigh it. Because if she were to come forward and lose that job, would she get another job in another department? You know, she's risking her livelihood to right. come Right, I mean, and, and she was still young. She was in her 20s, I believe, whenever this was happening. So you take that into account as well. And look, at there were so many things that I permitted in my 20s that I would not permit now. And that's with our current culture that, you know, has more of an understanding and less of a tolerance of this kind of thing. And also there was probably this weird kind of thing she had to wrap her head around that you're working in civil rights, you're working for equal opportunity, and this is happening to you. Yes. There. I mean, and at the end of the day, I mean, they made a big deal, which we will discuss about like her staying. But at the end of the day, she only stayed two years. So yeah, it's not- she, that's what I was going to say. She quit in 1983 because she was having what she thought were stress related stomach pains. So she did get out pretty fast. It's not like she worked with him for 10 years or anything. Right, right. I mean, and she, 
yeah, I agreed, agreed. Yeah, so that while, didn't make any. That argument didn't make any sense no, to me either. No, it's just, it's just, it's people grasping at straws to try and justify the situation. And again, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they themselves have done things that are questionable in the past, and so they know what this work culture is like. That's part of watching this confirmation hearing. Um, that's part of what makes it so frustrating is that you know these are all politicians of a certain age in the 1980s they've firsthand witnessed sexual harassment in the workplace a hundred percent oh yeah so they know that it happens um but they don't want to acknowledge that that is what that is one and that that is something that could be damaging to a person two because that would make them complicit in situations that they've experienced and like exactly well what's What's a little bit interesting to me is that it seems like Clarence Thomas is aware that his behavior is not so great because I guess upon her leaving, she said that he told her um, some sort of statement that if she ever disclosed it, that it would be enough to ruin his career. She said, my response was that I really just wanted to leave the experience behind me. I just wanted to get out. So it's like she didn't like the the stress and the hassle of even mentioning it. And then also him guilt tripping her like this would mean my career. And like that is like anybody who is empathetic I think too would kind of be like even though this guy's an asshole it's like well do I is it worth ruining his life over it is it worth ruining my life over it I understand that mindset Mm -hmm. being like I don't care dude I just want to get out I'm done you know I just want to seek something different and you know she did have people colleagues or former colleagues friends who did testify on her behalf who said that he joked about that kind of thing that he joked that like hey if you had any witnesses it would be enough to take me down essentially um and yeah okay so let's just continue on because i have a lot of thoughts and feelings but we'll discuss them as they yes definitely So, so let's start getting into how this all came about i said that so minnesota i said about about she left the job with Clarence Thomas in 1983 and went on to commercial law and contracts at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. And while there in 1991, President George H.W. Bush nominated Clarence Thomas, who at this time had been working as a federal circuit judge for only slightly over a year. Um, and he was nominated to succeed retiring Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Yeah, so... Thurgood Marshall, let's mention who that is, because he was the Supreme Court's first ever black Supreme Court justice. You know, huge warrior. Yeah. Civil rights icon. Great. From what I know, great human being uh, will be replaced with this piece of shit. Something that we felt with (laughs) RBG. That's another thing is that it wasn't about... It was about optics. Like George H.W. Bush was going to replace Thurgood Marshall with this guy who had only been a judge for a little over a year. Not because this person should have been there, but because he was another black man Uh and he was a Republican and they wanted to get a Republican in there specifically for Roe v. Wade um, and issues as such as that. Yeah. So um, as part of the vetting. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, because Clarence Thomas is very, very, very conservative. So he, he would be, for anyone on that side of the aisle, they would be really pushing for him to, to get a spot. Yes, yes. They wanted, they wanted to preserve the optics of having a black man 
on the Supreme... This is my opinion. Yeah. They wanted to preserve the optics of having a black man on the Supreme Court while also having the right black man who would support their very right-leaning conservative politics. Yeah, I mean, I was actually... That just reminded me of the response to President Biden's first 100-day speech that he gave yesterday. Um it was, I can't remember his name, but it was a black man who was representing the Republican Party who was criticizing President Biden's response. And I al- I think it that way all the time, too, of this gross kind of symbolism that I feel like the right tends to throw out. Like, look, we're not racist because of this. Yeah. You know we what have I mean? Candace like Owens, so yeah. it's fine. So yeah. that's why they push, like, those people to the front so that people yes. can't say... That yes. they're racist because they can point to that and say that they're not. Right. You know, and it as seems a black very woman, similar to me. As a black woman, I don't see how you can't feel like you're being used. Totally. Like, you have to know that, like, you are being used by this system. They're putting you at the front. Like, Candace Owens, honey, the on- uh, sweetie, the only reason you have a career is because they need a black person on their side yeah. that they can put in front as a mouthpiece to cover their own ass. That's why. I mean, and listen, I'm not trying to. Black people are not a monolith and yeah. they're not obligated to have the same political opinions as any other black person. Right. And Clarence Thomas, he has the right to believe whatever he wants to believe. But the fact that they chose him to replace their good marshal to me, it's very transparent. It's the same. It's exactly the same thing that they did to RBG, where they were like, yeah. we're going to replace a woman with a woman, no matter who that woman is or yep. what her politics are, or if they're completely antithetical to her predecessor. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know, so as part of the vetting process, the FBI did its due diligence, digging into Thomas's past and interviewing his former colleagues and employees in the documentary, Anita... Anita Hill says that she felt obligated to tell the truth about her time working with Thomas. She thought she'd just write her statement, mail it in, and that would be that. If other women had had similar experiences working with Thomas, perhaps they would write in as well and there would be a record. Yeah, it sounded like she was anticipating more women writing in as well. I think she had thought, well, if this happened to me, this has to have happened to more people. So I'm going to be one of... Probably many letters, multiple letters. It's not going to be me alone. Right. I mean, and regardless, you know, she never expected the interview to be released to the public. Like, yeah, it was leaked, which is so shitty. Right. Yeah. She thought that, okay, you know, they're asking for character references, essentially. I have this story. I should share this so that they have all of the information probably nothing there they probably won't follow up with me or anything like that but you know what i might as well just send this letter in you know it wasn't anything about there was nothing where she thought like okay this is going to be my identity for the rest of my life or this is going to come out or she probably wouldn't have done it you know what i mean like right it was leaked to the public um and all hell broke loose now this is this is This is the one thing I will say, and then I will not speak of it again because I feel like race was used as such a weapon. It was weaponized so much in this case. But what I will say is the fact that this one 
interview did manage to create such a stir does make me wonder if Clarence Thomas's race had something to do with like the press jumping on it the way they jumped on it. Oh, because it was a black man who was accused of sexual harassment? And it was a black man being confirmed to the Supreme Court. And so it, it does make me think perhaps that played something into the way the press jumped on it because they jumped on it so hard and fast yeah. at a time in the 1980s when this, unfortunately, sexual assault, unfortunately, was not being taken super seriously. Right. And in, in fact, I mean, we had Ted Kennedy sitting you know, on the Senate Judiciary Committee questioning Anita Hill, would go on to question Anita Hill, who had many, many allegations against himself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So are you saying then that you feel that people were jumping on this story as a way to keep another black man out of the Supreme Court? I think that perhaps that may have been initially part of what was going on there. I mean, now, that, that I would do, make sense to me. We don't know, obviously. I don't want it to be misconstrued. But. I don't want it to be misconstrued as a defense for Clarence Thomas. It's not. No, I'm just saying no, no, no. it might have been part of why the story seemed so appealing right. to a lot of people initially. Well, and but, also because there's obviously... Uh, a lack of regard for Anita in that situation because they're thinking about yes. the fact that it could be harmful to Clarence Thomas getting a seat right. on the Supreme Court, but they weren't considering the what harm and the damage her. that would happen to her. Exactly. Which like, I is, think that the people, I wonder, you know, obviously we're totally speculating right now, but I wonder if that was kind of part of the mindset. Like, we're going to go after this guy with really no concern as to the collateral which, damage that will go along with it. Is a recurring theme here. I mean, this situation, it's so frustrating and it highlights how frustrating it is to be a woman of color, a black woman specifically, because the way that Clarence Thomas went on to utilize race or weaponize it in this situation, the same regard was not given to Anita Hill, who was also black. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... She was villainized and attacked, but she was also a black woman, and she was villainized and attacked by a lot of black people yeah. as well. You well, know, we, I remember discussing that-, that with you years ago, talking about you know the the struggle in the community. I think I remember you yes. mentioning um, about who to support in that because. They're yes. both they're both black. They're both, you know, obviously, you know, one side is saying one thing, one side is saying the other. And I can understand where it would be hard for people to kind of know where to stake their claim well, at that time. This, there's a couple of things as well. You know, one of the lawyers who would go on to assist Anita Hill, he was the only black man to assist her. And he said in an interview on this documentary, basically, he was saying, no other black men would support her because they were telling her she can't do that to a brother. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there, there is this expectation within the civil rights community that black women are supposed to protect black men at all costs Mm -hmm. while not always receiving the same in return. Right. Where they don't feel the same protection from even those within the same like civil rights circles or within their own community or their own race, they're expected to 
protect black men in a way that they are not always protected by black men. Right. Um, and it's it's a very touchy subject. It's a it's something that is hard to talk about because we know we need to protect our black men to this right. day. We see the things that happen to our black men and, and black women get very protective of it. But there is also this culture of being dismissive or denigrating black women. Well, even yeah, within it's very patriarchal. It's very yes. patriarchal. You know, it's the it's the importance of of the man's you know, well-being over the woman's. And I, you know, I'm not trying to say it's that way in every single case, but that's kind of what it sounds like in the instances that you're discussing. You know, while there is um, race that they can all kind of, I guess, not bond upon, but agree upon, uh, but there are, you know, like we talk about all the time, intersections that make people different. And when we are living in a patriarchal society, being a black woman is going to be, more difficult because of that, you know? Right. You have compounding factors. You're going up against like all the men, you know? Men men of color and women of color have their own challenges. Yeah, right? exactly. They're specific to them. And there are things that black men experience that black women probably won't experience. But black women do have the compounded factor of sexism on top of racism. And then within communities like this that are so that can be so insular, you also then have this expectation of protection right. as well. That a black woman is not going to say anything because of the way that the culture is set up um, as well. And and so that that's all part of it. It's 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 very complicated. Definitely. But I but I appreciate the fact that she was able to see that no matter who this man is it's important to hold people accountable for their actions and that's what she was doing. You know, really holding right. to her guns instead of you know, letting herself go with that and saying, you know, that you're maybe you're right. Maybe I do need to see this as a different as a different kind of problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so although I don't think that she necessarily wanted this to happen. Of course not. (laughs) She she seemed like a very quiet kind of person. This was not like what she wanted. Yeah, she was like a law professor in Oklahoma, just like living her life. Just trying to teach her classes. She's like, could you stop following me with cameras every single day of my life? For real. (laughs) But it did begin, uh, regardless of why it took off the way it did and all of the downsides of it. It did begin this national dialogue surrounding sexual harassment, particularly in the workplace. You had people, you had, you know, female politicians, you had people actually discussing that this was a thing that happens and that it can have negative side effects. And I think that that was probably the first time that America had that kind of reckoning and that kind of discourse around something like sexual harassment. Definitely, definitely. So the hearings were then reopened. They were about to close. Pretty much nobody was contesting Clarence Thomas. Yeah, well, it's weird because they were pretty much only asking him things about his qualifications because he was only a circuit judge for 18 months. So they were mostly focusing on the fact if he could even do the job, essentially. Like, that kind of is what it seemed like with the the first 10 days of their investigation. And then once all the Anita Hill stuff came out, they decided that they needed to reopen the investigation. And none other than our now president, Joe Biden, was put in charge of it. He was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. 
Right. And he called Anita Hill and was like, hey, we're going to need you to testify. And she was like, okay. So she um, showed up on October 11th, 1991. And this was all broadcast on television. She she expresses in the documentary how naive she was going into the hearing because she really believed that they were interested in the truth and that they would only want someone of the utmost integrity sitting on the bench. Yeah. She was really unprepared for what was about to follow. She was like, all I'm going to do is she didn't, which, why would you, you wouldn't think that you were about to walk in there and get crucified. No, or just say that you're wrong. You would be on, you wouldn't think that you would be on trial. Like, but they're like, I'm here to just tell my story. That's why I'm here. Asked her there. Like they, they asked her to come. So I would be, I would think the same way if they're like, Hey, we really want you to come and share your story. And tell what happened to testify. Like, okay. I would think they're on my side. They understand. They see why this is a big deal or, and why I need yes. to talk about it. You know? Yeah, even if even if they're not on your side, what what that seems to me is that they're saying, like, okay, we recognize that this is a problem, that that we don't know if we want somebody on the Supreme Court who has this kind of background. So like, sure. Let's have you on. Let's let you tell your story. And that's that is kind of how I would look at it. It's yeah. like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to come in and I'm going to tell my story. But the problem was that Thomas's supporters had already decided to try and destroy her credibility because they needed a Republican, specifically somebody who had Clarence Thomas's views. Yeah. On in order to to offset the Supreme Court, the same way we saw with Brett Kavanaugh, uh, it was more important to them politically to have this man on the Supreme Court, regardless of whatever he did. That's, right. that's my personal opinion about that. Yeah. So she had to sit down in front of an all-white, all-male judiciary committee and answer some of the most humiliating questions. Ugh. It's hard to watch. I'd never seen it before. And it's so obvious that... The way these questions were, it's not that they're asking the questions. It's about the way that these questions were posed to her. Yeah. They were so, just insult. I I don't know. Yeah. Gross. It's, and I think that it's, it's important to say like how hard it is to, to recount something painful from your life, to say the words that have hurt you so badly and to explain sexual harassment sexual assault any of that it's such a shameful thing for the person which it shouldn't be and it's also it's awkward and uncomfortable to talk about so having her explain you know tell the story about the pubic hair on the coke can i just was like explicitly over and over in what was they all had the transcript yes and she was like i said i said it in the transcript like well can you say it out loud and they made her say all these things over and over again which is i understand that you know if we're looking at all of these trials like all trials for sexual assault and harassment as a whole i understand why getting that information is important but when you have a statement in front of you and if she's already said it once why are you making her explain everything in such detail over and over again it's re-traumatizing it's horrible well and it truly felt designed to embarrass her definitely as much as possible like that's that's what it felt like it felt like they were putting her on trial and they were trying to catch her in a lie or they were trying to get her to repeat things 
over and over so that it could sound silly or not as serious yeah. as it was. It it was gross. I mean, it, it looking back on it with a modern lens, uh-huh. especially, I don't see how you can look at that and not think this is a woman who's being intentionally embarrassed. Yeah. Like they are intentionally trying to re-traumatize her. And that, and that is how it feels. And to her credit, she remained very poised and oh, calm. very calm voice, the very steady. Time. I mean, that's that's the lawyer in her. Like that that training that she's been through, I think, is definitely coming in handy because she was able to just keep a poker face and to keep herself calm and to just do what she was asked to get through it. And I'm sure inside it was a completely different image of how she felt, you know? Yeah, I can't imagine. And then, you know, they show whenever her entire family showed up to the hearing they yeah. got there late and so they made space for like all of her siblings and her parents who were in their 70s her 12 the siblings <laughs> yeah yeah and while i can't imagine how comforting it must be to have people there who you know are on your side unconditionally on your side it also having to rec- recount the things that they were making her say i wouldn't want my family loud, there in front of her parents like It's and I don't know. It it felt unnecessary. It felt like she was on trial and they ambushed her. I mean, like they ambushed her. Yeah. And that's the thing is that they have to ask these questions. She's there to talk about it like that. I completely understand. The the questions are fine. Yeah. It's the way they did it. It's reading it is one thing, but watching it happen. You're you're right. It's completely different. It's just it's. It's crazy to look at because there's just this table with this ugly green tablecloth over it where hideous hideous, and Anita's sitting there facing just this huge, you know, up on a pedestal, you know, group of men who are looking down at her and the way that they're and I remember Biden asking a few questions where he was saying something like, you know, I know this is tough, you know, being as gentle as I can, like kept kind of saying these things. And I'm like, that doesn't actually make it any better. <laughs> like you right, you're apologizing actually, for saying it and then right. saying it doesn't actually make it now, an apology. Is it, is it preferable to being just out and out antagonistic, which some of them were? Right. Sure. But like none of it was really okay. Like this isn't how you handle a witness in a case. Like yeah. you don't set out to discredit and humiliate them, which is what it felt like they were doing and like they were there were some of them were being like intentionally obtuse where they were like I I don't understand what you're talking about and she was very calm where she was like okay let me explain it exactly exactly yes here is what I'm saying they're saying so okay so you weren't sexually assaulted or sexually harassed rather and she's saying no I was sexually harassed here are the reasons why I'm yeah. saying that. Well, let's let's actually talk about that a little bit. Some of the things that Clarence Thomas was up to, because I think it is mm-hmm. uh, it's a different story than we hear. Because again, there was no sexual contact contact. Yes, but um, the things that Clarence Thomas did and said in Anita's presence is absolutely disgusting. So a few months after she began working for him, he started asking her out what she said socially, which I would assume is kind of like asking her on a date. A date, yeah. Yeah. Like trying to get her to come out. 
he was doing this many times and she, you know, always declined his requests. And so he would use work situations to discuss sexual subjects. She Which said. Which felt very much like retaliation to me. Oh, like definitely. You've, you've said no to me. My ego is damaged. Uh-huh. And so I am going to make you as uncomfortable as I can. Um, because it's power. Yeah, and he's well, and to talk about power, like he would talk about his own sexual prowess to her. He would talk about uh, what she said, such matters as women having sex with animals and films showing group sex or rape scenes, uh, talking about the size of his genitals. We mentioned the Coke can incident. I guess she was alone in the office with him and he picked up his, you know, can of Coke and was like, Who's who put pubic hair on my coke? Which is one just a really weird thing to say. Like it's not funny. Like there's not like even not that sexual harassment is ever funny, but like that's not clever. Um, but she's alone with him making these comments, and I can imagine how uncomfortable and scared I would feel even if he's not actually doing anything the things that he's talking about are really scary like gang rape and um sex with animals yes. and all this stuff like it's intimidating and it's scary I guess scary. we should have put a trigger on this before oh, sorry. we start talking about it but but yeah I mean it is scary and it's <sighs> she did tell several of her former colleagues as I mentioned earlier about this and there were people who actually noticed a change in her behavior yeah where where they said you know Anita like you you don't look good like are you okay and that she very begrudgingly kind of admitted to the fact that she was receiving these unwanted sexual advances at work and yeah. it was really having a huge effect on her personal life on well, and her, her health emotional uh, emotional life her health her mental health um it was really difficult for her and so for her to go through all of that and then once she got to the hearing she had some of these people were actually questioning her motivations which again yeah i want to say it's not that the questions were being asked that's the problem yeah it's not it's not that people were asking her tough questions because she was there to answer tough questions. Uh It's the way that they were stated to her was was so misogynistic. There was one member of the committee who asked her point blank if she was a, quote, scorned woman or if she had a martyr complex and asked if she was doing this to try and secure some kind of foothold within the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, it was very much as though they were searching for any possible solution except for what is the most obvious yeah one, which is that she's telling the truth uh, the senator orrin hatch who is still a committee member apparently suggested that she got the idea for some of her charges from the movie the exorcist come okay. on it's, it, that is a reach it doesn't it doesn't make sense i mean and he is also the same one who said that she was working in tandem with slick lawyers and interest groups bent on destroying thomas's chances to join the court which is what Clarence Thomas, that's the line that he would give, is still the line that he gives, essentially, is that Anita Hill was working with Democrats to try and prevent him from getting on the court. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense, because prior to her coming forward, he actually, I I don't want to say he had bipartisan support because it wasn't bipartisan support but it certainly wasn't opposition yeah there weren't a lot of democrats who were trying to prevent him from getting on the court yeah it was i feel like it was more so like the people that were unhappy about him getting 
the nomination less than like the congressmen and the senators. It seems like, or rather, the senators. Yeah, yeah, yeah senators. senators. It seems like it was more an issue for the people, you know, for the feminist groups, for the civil rights activists. It was a really right. big issue, but not as much in our government. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and as I said, Anita Hill did have four former colleagues testify that she had spoken about harassment from Thomas seven years previously. She told them reluctantly, and of course, they believed her to be credible. One of her friends who did testify during that hearing, he was re-interviewed in 2014 for the documentary, mm-hmm. and he he was saying very emphatically, like, she told us this seven years before Clarence Thomas was supposed to be a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Why? And he said, quote, why would anyone make up this story in order to use it seven years later? Exactly. It didn't didn't make sense that she would. She would lie and make up this very elaborate, long game story. Yeah, it's very gone girl. Very gone girl. It just didn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and her her friends very much. They were great witnesses. Yeah. You watch this. And you watched her. And for me personally, there was nothing in her testimony or in the testimony of her friends that led me to believe that she was that lying. This yeah. was a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing is that it was more so the other side that was trying to create a narrative where she looked like she was lying and it just didn't work. But I also think that especially because this wasn't really an issue, Clarence Thomas being on, on the bench wasn't an issue for either side of the aisle, really, I I feel like a lot of people probably already made up their minds. So their idea going into it was to make her look as bad as they could uh, in course, order for him to still get a spot. Absolutely, because they didn't want to look like the assholes who let this sexual harasser on. So they had to make her look as um, bad as possible. But there were also four female witnesses who reportedly waited in the wings to support Hill's credibility. They were they had also worked with Clarence Thomas yeah. um, at this at the same place that she had worked with him. And they ended up not being called due to what the Los Angeles Times described as a private compromise deal between Republicans and the Senate Judiciary Committee chair. Joe Biden. Yep. So it was in their best interest to kind of get this thing done and over with as quickly as possible. And because of that, they did not want to bring forward anybody who would directly corroborate and say, this happened to me also. Yeah. So in the end, the vote came down to 52-48 with Clarence Thomas being confirmed to be on the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, and a big part of that... Was that when it was Clarence Thomas's turn to speak, much like we saw with Brett Kavanaugh, where he was extremely angry, full of a lot of emotion. Clarence Thomas was intensely defensive. Yeah. Because by this point, also, again, <laughs> Anita Hill's team that she had assembled to help her out, like it, they were not expecting to go into a criminal trial. Yeah. So they, it's not like they were going to go in and like be able to give a defense rebuttal. Uh-huh. So. In order to defend her, they were like, okay, let's take this outside of court. So they had Anita take a polygraph test. Yep. And she swore to the harassment that it happened and she passed the test. So by the time Clarence Thomas got up there, people were like, I don't know. 
And then when he got up there, he was so aggressive and defensive and he called the hearing a, quote, travesty and disgusting and that, quote, this hearing should never occur in America. And he then went on, which this was a calculated move by the Republicans at the time, um, he went on to say that he believed as a black man in America, the hearing amounted to, quote, a high tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves that unless you kowtow to the old order, this is what will happen to you. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. No, lo- like, lo- it doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. But I I think he's using a lot of language that is inciting, though, to people. Of course. And that will make... strategy. Yeah, that will make people potentially see his side, you know? Nobody wanted to go against Clarence Thomas when this is what he was saying. Uh Uh-huh. When... And and again, it makes it so tricky to talk about. It's it's so tricky to, to have this conversation. But Anita Hill was also a black woman, and the press really ignored that. Yeah. Like, they ignored the fact that, like, okay, Clarence Thomas is using race in this way. Uh-huh. But Anita Hill is also black. And she was also experiencing something specific to not only being a woman, but being a black woman. Definitely. Yeah. And the, and the same kind of courtesy or consideration was not being given to her. Yeah. But like you said, on October 15th, 1991, the Senate confirmed Clarence Thomas as a Supreme Court justice. And after this, Anita Hill continued to experience harassment from strangers daily and accused of lying about her testimony. And basically from that point forward, her life was never the same. Yeah. She was never going to go back to living the same kind of quiet life as a professor in Oklahoma yeah. as she had done before. So though Anita was tenured, a tenured professor, professor, she was actually the first tenured professor at the university she worked at, the state politicians, who, as I said earlier, in Oklahoma uh, were very red Republicans, yeah. attempted to get her fired from her position at the university. And when that didn't work, they went after the dean of the university, and then they went after the law school herself, uh, the law school itself. Yeah. She received... Bomb threats to the school, bomb threats to her house, personal death threats, threats of violence, threats of sexual violence, and the list goes on. Yeah. And it's like, she why would anybody want this? Why would anybody want and it? Nobody for would all want the people this. People who were like, "You're doing this for attention. You're doing it because <laughs> not the attention I want." <laughs> you know? Um, yes. Yeah, and the the university eventually defunded Anita's prof- professorship in May of 1999 without the position ever being filled. It's just so upsetting that she even lost her job, the thing that she loved so much. And that was the reason that she fucking stuck it out with Clarence Thomas to begin with was for her career. So it's so frustrating that she went through something and, and then eight years after the hearing, still being punished and losing your job would just be so unbelievably heartbreaking. I'm so glad that she was able to continue her law career and didn't let that be uh, a deterring factor in her from pursuing her dreams still. I, yeah, I want to say that, like, she is so, seeing her live and in color, like, on this documentary, she is so inspiring to watch. Because yeah. Because you know she's got to be struggling so much on the inside And yet she is walking out and talking to cameras, even though she's being followed every single day of her life. And she is still saying, you know, I hope that 
this has opened the door for people to have these conversations. Yeah. I hope that um, we continue to have a bigger conversation. Like, yes, Clarence Thomas was confirmed. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about equality for women in the workplace. And I think a big part of that was because alongside all of the threats that she received, all of the things that came her way, she also received letters from women and men across the country who had experienced sexual harassment and assault in the workplace who now felt empowered to tell their stories and to speak up. And yeah. to this day, she has file cabinets in her basement of letters and she estimates that she has about 25,000 letters. And how how heartbreaking is that? That there's 2,500 stories that were sent to Thousand. her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Like that's... It's too many. It's too many instances of this happening. Yeah. And it's so frustrating. But uh, yeah, as as horrible as this experience was for her, this case really became historic to be able to have it be a teaching moment for what this process could be, you know, a, a what it means to go through sexual harassment and to go through these trials and things like that. And it's it's upsetting that, you know, a couple of years ago, we essentially saw this story repeat itself with Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, where, you know, we're talking about, oh, back then they felt this way, they felt this way. And I feel that we have made a lot of progress especially when it comes to education and what sexual harassment in the workplace looks like. Right, right. Um, and largely because of Anita Hill. Exactly. Like, I feel like exactly. She the, paved the work. way. Yeah. And yeah, and, I mean, and, and she continued to do the work. Like she she moved to California in 1997. And at that point, she made a promise to herself that she would dedicate two years. She was like, I'm going to dedicate two years of my life to fixing the problem of sexual harassment. I I'm going to fix it by myself. Right. I'm going to do I'm it. I'm going to fix it. And she's like, or maybe it was two years after the confirmation. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> but like, she was like, I am going to spend two years fixing this problem of sexual harassment in the workplace before, and then I'm going to return to commercial law. Well, two years went by and she could see that there were massive strides made largely in part because she had put this conversation into the public right. discourse. But the problem was not fixed. No. <laughs> you know, like there was still so much to talk about. Yeah, but I think that what's amazing, it, it shows the power of telling your story and telling it over and over and over again so people know it and understand it. Because, you know, she wrote books about her experiences after this and her thoughts on, you know, race and gender and equality and all of these things. So the fact yes. that we have not only just her testimony, because while that was historic, I don't know if we would all know the name Anita Hill as well as we do if it wasn't for her continually telling her story. And while she is private, she isn't one that comes out and talks a whole lot. It's out there and she's written it down so that you cannot dispute it. It was her side. She took control of her own narrative. And I think that that is also why, you know, a girl at Barnes & Noble who picks up that book and reads that story can then have the courage to stand up to whoever is oppressing her. You know, that right. it's that power of sharing your story. Absolutely. And I think with someone like Anita Hill as well, part of the power in it is that it's telling people, including myself, who, you know, we grew up in kind of the same time period. But for me, I really did feel like it's not worth 
kicking up a fuss about. It's not worth talking about unless it is aggravated, violent, yeah, sexual assault, definitely or rape. Right. Where I was just like, otherwise, it's just something that is expected and it's par for the course and you should just you got to deal with it. Yeah. Right. And I feel like Anita Hill was one of the first people who on a very large forum said, actually, this kind of behavior is detrimental. It affects women particularly, but everybody who is on the receiving end of it negatively. Um, and it's not OK. And. I, I can't say how important it is yeah. to have somebody say that. Just boldface say it, like not apologize for it. Say no, like this actually really wasn't all right. And we shouldn't be okay with somebody holding a position in the highest court in our nation who has... Who behaves this, this way. way. Yeah, like it's just, it makes complete sense why she thought that but the fact that she was actually able to go through with it is a kind of courage that I don't know I'll ever have the the power I, of, you know like I agree. that's yeah it's a and lot I, I do not to linger on him because he's such a piece of shit but I do want to emphasize how much of a piece of shit Clarence Thomas is um in 2007 he published his autobiography my grandfather's son Ugh. I'm sure he's so proud in which he revisited the controversy and he called Hill like it just is so unnecessary it's like so it's gross. so unnecessary what he does he called Anita Hill his, quote, most traitorous adversary and said that pro-choice liberals who feared that he would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade um, were the ones who kind of concocted this scandal and chose to use it against him. And then he said that Hill was touchy and apt to overreact and yep. that her work at the EEOC was mediocre. Yep. And he acknowledged that the three other former EEOC employees that backed Hill's story were had left the agency on bad terms. Yeah, so he so indicated that he's, that wasn't true. Yeah, he's in the right. Everything is fine. Yeah, all, these these women be crazy. Right. I mean, he, it's it's and how Trumpy ended all of that sound too. Like he's even calling her scary. work mediocre. Like all of that to me sounded so Trumpian. because it's unnecessary. Yeah. Like you're on the Supreme Court, you can't rise above this. Like it's so weird he's and so mediocre. Childish. If you didn't do anything, guess what? You quote unquote won. All right. Yeah. Like you got what you so wanted. So shut the fuck up and move on. Like I can't. I couldn't believe it when that documentary opened with a call. Yes. From. So three years later. Yes. From Clarence Thomas's wife leaving a voicemail yeah. on Anita Hill's phone, essentially asking her to come forward and, and admit that everything she said was a lie so that they can finally put this behind them and blah, 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 blah. And like this woman is saying it in such like a, hi, I just want to see how you hi. are. It sounds like it sounds like old friends. Yeah. Like she's. She's on this woman's voicemail as if this was a like as if your husband didn't harass this woman and yeah essentially try to ruin her life. Oh, but but to the but to Ginny, the wife, it's the other way around in her eyes for some reason Anita is the reason that you know her husband's name was tainted. I just I could the audacity. I couldn't even believe that she would call someone's phone and leave that kind of voicemail especially with that amount of like sweetness 
sounding to it. Right. You it's, know, it's disgusting. It was it's so really manipulative and gross. It, it is. And I know that Anita Hill, when she first heard the message, she wasn't sure that this was actually Ginny. Yeah. She um, thought it was like a joke or Thomas. something. Right. She was like, but she was like, even if it's a joke, it's really like fucked up. So she went and had it verified and it was Virginia Thomas. And at that point, you know, when it was released to the media, she said that the message, because Ginny Thomas came out and said it was meant to be an olive branch, right? right. It was meant to be me extending this olive, olive branch. Anita Hill said, I don't think it was meant to be conciliatory. And she said, quote, I testified truthfully about my experience and I stand by that testimony. Yeah, girl. So she was like, I am not going to sit here and be told that I need to apologize to what to you for what I put your family through, like yeah. whatever yeah. you're trying to say. It's I, I won't do it. Yeah. It's just crazy that people can hold on to what they want to believe so badly that they would do something like that, you know, to call the victim who you don't even see as a victim and make that kind of request is just so mind boggling to me how she's able to twist the situation to the complete other direction. I saw the denial all over Ginny Thomas's face yeah. during that during that hearing. Like, well, and she, then she would have to admit that her husband is like flirting with other girls too and like you know like yeah no she's not gonna admit it you know she's not going she's not willing to do that and this is their political future it's her future too this is her husband yeah and well she was success is her success she was a lobbyist too so she was you know involved in politics as well yeah but i mean it, it i was appalled by that yeah uh, you know the fact that and just the fact that this couple won't leave her alone i know like, enough. fucking move enough. on you have your life. He's on the Supreme Court. What does anything that Anita Hill has to do now, how does this really affect you? Is he still on the Supreme Court? I didn't even look yes, that up. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I figured he, I was like, well, he's not dead. So he's got to still yeah, be he, on the Supreme Court. <laughs> he was on the Supreme Court when Brett Kavanaugh yep, had his yep, hearing. Oh, Christine yep, yep, yep. Blasey Ford had to testify in front of Clarence Thomas. Oh, and I, I love horrible. that. And I, I appreciate that. This conversation came up again when Biden was announced as being, you know, our president elect and Anita Hill, you know, still kind of stuck with her guns to say that, like, what he did wasn't OK. He set the stage for the Brett Kavanaugh right. hearing to happen. I do appreciate, he however, to, he tried to apologize. Like, he tried to apologize. Yeah, he tried to, like, assuage her said, and she was like, it's no. It's not enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's not enough. It's not enough of an apology. Yeah, she um, did come out and say... You know, I'm gonna like vote for him because I it's worse than it, he's better than the other guy, you know, because like that was a big question. Like, will you vote for him? And it's like, of course, like, yeah, I'll vote for him because I don't want Donald Trump in office. But I was glad that she was still able to be so vocal about the fact that Biden really screwed up. And whatever he's trying to say that, you know, I called and we're patching things up that she's saying, no, it's really not cool with me. And it's not that simple. I kind of I appreciate that because I think that there's so much talk about forgiveness and taking the high road and while I think that's always a good thing I think that it's also just as important to always know your worth and know that what your experience is is valid and not have to forgive someone or change your mind about a person 
years and years later just because they called and said they were sorry. You know, her still saying, no, what he did greatly hurt my life and I'm not willing to just move past that and forgive it. I respect that greatly. I I do too. I mean, you can say, okay, like I realize like we're in a different space now and like thank you for your apology. Yeah. But your apology doesn't fix this situation. Uh It, It doesn't take back what you've done well, to me. And it doesn't take back what he did to her, but it also doesn't take back what he's set in motion for years to yes. come because this exact same thing just happened a few years ago. Like, he could have taken the control that he was given and made so many different choices to have had there be a different outcome. And he didn't right. do that. He was buddy-buddy on both sides of the aisle, sharing information with his right. Republican buddies. He That's even said... In, like, the closing statement, you know, I don't have it in front of me. I don't want to look at my notes. But he said something like, you know, don't let, you know, your personal feelings affect you too much. Like, I know my colleagues. That kind of thing where, you know, it was almost like he was giving the okay to his colleagues to discredit what she said openly. You know, it's... Right. Yeah. I mean, and that was that was a concern with Joe Biden from the beginning. And that's something that we talked about whenever he was running his campaign. It's why it's part of why neither one of us were super excited about him as a candidate. It's that like this whole focus on reaching across the aisle and um, unity. He's been too buddy buddy surface. (laughs) Right. On the surface, unity sounds like a good thing. It's not it's not a good thing if it's at the expense of of oppressed people like you can't compromise about certain things you're not supposed to compromise about those things exactly and if you're going to and you're willing to because you don't want to rock the boat and you don't want to make it difficult for yourself or for other people that's a problem that makes you spineless yeah and like i don't actually want that in my president i agree um, yeah you know so so there, there is that, and I appreciate that she did acknowledge, like, okay, you know, thanks for your apology, but also it's not enough. Yep. And I do want to say we were talking about Christine Blasey Ford. In September of 2018, Anita Hill wrote an op-ed for the New York Times regarding sexual assault allegations made by Christine Blasey Ford during the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination. And it did kind of bring all of this back up, and there were a lot of op-ed pieces written comparing the two women and the fact that all these years later we're in the same 27 years later we're in a very similar boat and in fact in this case it was actually the allegations were aggravated rape yeah sexual assault yeah it was sexual Um, contact attempted or attempted rape rather but but yeah you know and and still, I can't imagine what that must have been like for Anita Hill to have to see that happen again mm-hmm. and see the outcome be what it was. Heartbreaking. And after, I can imagine after, after all the work she's put into. Exactly. That, yeah, dedicating her life ugh, to this. Yeah. It breaks my heart. Because that is what she did. She did dedicate her entire life to gender equality, uh, gender equity, and fighting specifically sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. Yeah, and she also wrote a chapter called Women in Leadership, the State of Play and Strategies for Change, where she wrote about why it's so important for us to have female judges because the more 
you know, diverse our Supreme Court is, the more different people are represented, the fairer our judicial system is going to be. So I appreciate that she also really has a strong stand on how we can better this process in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, we did it. We covered Anita Hill. She is an amazing, amazing woman. If there are any topics that you want us to cover in the future, you know what to do. Please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. I love checking on the group page. People post things. It's so much fun. So if you haven't checked it out, go join the group page and chat with the other listeners. And if you haven't already, go over to the business page and like us and leave a review. And even more importantly than that, if you have not left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, please scoot your butts on over to that app and do so right away. All right, that's all we got for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage rage on. on. Bye! Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.